Hi, I'm Bella Sanger, enthusiastic eater, exhausted parent, founder, and CEO. In this video podcast, I really wanted to talk with a diversity of badass female entrepreneurs and thought leaders getting into what it means to belong in our professions, in our cultures, and our own bodies. As an Indian-born, Canadian-raised American woman who spent years fighting for a seat at the table, I just decided to build my own. So grab a cup of chai and join me. Welcome to Bella's Table. Hello, and welcome to our episode about colorism. Today, I am being joined by Professor Joanne Rondilia. She is um, she has earned her PhD from UC Berkeley and is teaching today at San Jose State University. Um, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, this episode is about colorism, and we're going to unpack uh, how women of color have been um, struggling with and dealing with. And now we're finally going to start talking about it openly here, our struggles with our skin color and how our communities, societies, and cultures have uh, conditioned us to feel shame around that. So thank you for joining me today. Joanne, please tell me a little bit about yourself and what brought you to the work that you do today um, around colorism and um, your time at UC Berkeley as a professor. So um, again, uh, my research is on colorism. Specifically, I look at the Filipino Filipinx community. Um, a little bit of, about how I got there was I, for over 12 years, worked in the cosmetics industry, and I did that before. I was a graduate student at UC Berkeley. And um, while I was a graduate student, I, I was looking at how, you know, firsthand how women shop for cosmetics, how women shop for their beauty products. And also I was raised in a family that um, really valued light skin on my mom's side of the family. Uh, like a bunch of my aunties, as well as my mom, they were all sort of provincial beauty queens. And so there's this, there's this definite pride in my family um, regarding skin tone. And so growing up, because I was born and raised on Guam. And so I was very, I was much darker skinned growing up. And also in the family, I'm, I'm the fat one or like, so I say fat, not in the insulting way. It's just a descriptor. Hey, right? you know, so I was much larger than my cousins. And so I, the, for me, the research really came from living, living, um, living with the idea that lighter is better. And I wanted to create a language and an understanding, especially for uh, Filipino for for the Filipino community and the Asian American community at large. Like, how can we start to be honest about uh, these issues of colorism? Um, because re- at the time when I was studying it, colorism was so normalized; it was so easy, and so we we almost take it for granted. This idea that lighter skin or you know Eurocentric features are much better, and I really wanted to unpack that, especially as I started to learn more about um, imperialism and colonization of the Philippines and other parts of Asia. Yeah, that really resonates with me. And um, I've been excited for some time to have this conversation with you. Curiosity, when you were growing up in your house, did you hear oftentimes praise for the kids that were born with fair skin? Like, you're so beautiful and fair. And did that put a foot, did that create a footprint in your mind about seeing yourself in the mirror and the fact that you had more tanned skin, you said, when you were a child? 
Yeah, absolutely. I actually, I can pinpoint the moment that I knew that not being light was not a good thing in the family. When I was about seven years old, we went to the Philippines um, my and, and we spent most of our time with my mom's family and I have cousins there and we're all Filipino, but they, I guess, pass for more mixed race. They're lighter skinned and they were also brought up um, learning ballet and riding horses. And this is in the Philippines. And so I remember being a kid and at night we would gather to watch these cousins dance you know, ballet or sing, they would always sing. And I just remember the, you know, just those loving, longing looks from my mom towards these cousins. And I thought, oh my gosh, like, I think it was the first time I felt like, wow, love is not unconditional in this family because certain people get a little bit more love or a little bit more attention. And it was for things that were beyond my own control. And I learned that at a really young age. Mm. I can completely relate. I I was always, uh, I think I was changed by listening to the elders in my family praise the kids who are much lighter. And of course, you're a kid, you don't know what that means. Um, but then you start to build a sense of like, I am less than, and you can't quite pinpoint it until maybe you're 38 and sitting in like therapy <laughs> with your therapist, right? <laughs> to this day, um, you know, I I hear like I have a 10-year-old daughter and a 6-year-old son and they're both really fair-skinned and their dad is really fair-skinned and I'm proudly an olive-toned. And so it's fascinating to me listening to people talk about how fair my children are and that's something that I should be outwardly proud of and therefore it deserves their congratulation. And then also, I wonder if you also in in your culture there's a spectrum of and i know my friends who don't have this shared childhood are going to be like what are you talking about no but it's actually true there is a spectrum of talking about how light and dark your skin tone is so in in my culture you know we speak punjabi so there's a word for your wheat tone there's a word for you know your biscuit tone there's a word for olive tone there's a word for dark like really dark which has a you know pejorative connotation to it so there's a spectrum of value you're you're almost good enough you're almost good enough you know you're definitely not good enough oh no we 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 feel sorry for you do you have that language that tooling around language in your culture when it comes to talking about skin tones and their darkness yeah, absolutely. So you'll have to excuse me because I don't know Tagalog very well, but I do know some of the to the, the terms that are used. Um, so for example, and again, like, and I'll, I will apologize for not knowing the exact context of these terms, but some of the terms that I've heard are like itim, which means, you know, someone who is very dark skinned. And usually if you are described as itim or egot, it's not a, a good it's not good. Sometimes someone will be described as morena, which is dark skinned, but you're usually sort of more medium toned. And so in some contexts, when someone says, oh, you're morena, it's like saying you're dark, but you're like the beautiful kind of dark. And then um, there's pute, which is white or or light. Sometimes um, people will use the term americano or, or americana. Um, and and it's it's to... One, it's it's to note someone who's white American, but also 
in some contexts, if you're a Filipino American and you're coming back to the Philippines, you'll be referred to as like, as Americana or, or Americano. And, it, and it's, um, it's about your, in that context, it's your proximity to America. Because one of the things that I had noted was, you know, usually it's about the actual skin tone, but then there are other contexts of colorism, at least in, in the research that I did, where it became about your proximity to the West, your proximity to America. So during one of my interviews, I remember the interviewee, she kept calling me, she kept referring to me as the white one. And I freaked out because I have never in my life ever been the white one. And when you look at both of our skin tones, I was actually darker than her. And then she flipped my she she flipped my arm over to like the, that sort of light side. Right. The flesh. Side and um, uh-huh. yeah. And then she compared it and she goes, no, you're in, in, in Tagalog. Basically, she said, no, you're the white one. And like and I and I interpreted that that moment as not just being about skin tone, but also because I am from the U.S., right? And I conducted several interviews where uh, these women were born and raised in the Philippines. They have this understanding of them being dark, and then they would immigrate to the United States. And when they came back, suddenly, you know, it, it didn't matter if they were as dark as they were growing up. The fact that they came from America kind of it lightened them in a sense, you know, because when you come back as an American, you have this elevated status. And so you were read as light, which meant that you got certain treatment in restaurants or among the family or when you're shopping. So there, there were, there are all of these really complex ways to understand the meaning of skin tone. Sometimes it is the actual physical, it, it's about physicality, but there's this other whole other layer where it's about your ability to leave and you know like the fact that you left and the fact that you're away from the Philippines that lightened you in a sense yeah this is heartbreaking cuz it just resonates so deeply so yeah i have to just kind of gather my thoughts here um where i come from and and where i was raised i was born in india and in a little village, no electricity, no plumbing. And my mom sent me to an all-girls school. I started when I was three. And she was so proud that I wore a navy blue pleated skirt and went to an English-speaking school. And, um, you know, when she would send pictures of me to all the relatives outside of India, that is the photo that she sent. And it's so interesting because colonialism really left a footprint um, yeah. Long after they have been, you know, gone from India um, and how that influences the way we think about ourselves or our inherent value. Um, what are your thoughts on that? On generational right. impact on that? Yeah, no, I absolutely agree because, you know, the American colonial period technically ended um, a little after World War II in the Philippines. But yet today, the mode of education in the Philippines is still English, right? So if you have some type of education that if you're from the Philippines and you were educated in some way, but, you know, just by being educated, you had to speak English. And so formal colonization may have ended um, in 1946, but, you know, 
American colonization still continues to impact uh, the Filipino, the Filipinx community today, right? Um, I think about this in terms of my own mom, and 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 just for context, my mom passed away last year, so and so sorry. thank you. Um, so as like my siblings were putting together, you know the you know like all the information for the death certificate and things. One of the questions that um, they ask is, "Oh, what was her level? What was her highest level of education?" And immediately, I think it was my brother. He said, "Oh, a bachelor's degree." And then I, I, I took a long pause and I said, "Actually, no." I, I said, "Jerry, mom has a doctorate. Like, mom's a medical doctor. She, she's a dentist." And my brother goes, "There's no way mom was a dentist, and we didn't know this." And I said, "Jerry." I didn't learn about this until 2012 when I got my PhD because all that time, you know, in the family, everyone thought, oh, you know, Joanne is the first, our first doctor. And I said, Jerry, um, our mom is, is actually in, in our immediate family. Our mom is the first doctor. And the reason why I mentioned that is because, um, when she came to the U S there's no memory or mention of this because the idea was that because she didn't take the test to be a doctor here, that her Philippine degree just didn't matter. So there was no discussion about that. Right. You know, and I, you know, like, as I reflect on my mom, like there were, there are a lot of things that she had let go of when she moved here. And I think part of that was, you know, not seeing herself as fully valuable. Right. And, when you're in that situation, you hold on to the things that are valuable. And I think that, it, at least to me, I think that's why my mom held on so tightly to these notions of beauty, right? Because it was a thing that she knew that she had. It was, you know, it gave her some identity. It gave her some power. It was something that she would later impose on my sister and I without any, um, you know, without any consideration of like, okay, how is this impacting my kids? Right. So yeah, I, I, I definitely resonate with what you're saying, you know, cause colonialism to this very day still, you know, it, it still continues to wreak havoc on our, on our respective communities. Yeah, it definitely does. And I think it's also really interesting. Um, we, I keep coming back to the themes that I have been looking in the mirror and addressing in these last 10 years of my life. And one of them is contending with the idea that you're not good enough. And mm. as I sit here in this podcast, talking to very intelligent, smart women, just like you, and we're sharing our pain and our grievances and our grief journeys too. It's amazing to me. Um, and even actually my friends who, um, you know, aren't of the BIPOC journey and experience, mm -hmm. they also feel invalidated in their own, in their own lives and how desperate we are to be loved and to be validated. And I think that's so consistent in the human experience. And you and I are just talking about one facet of that. And I'm curious to know um, how, I'm assuming you have, but I, that might not be true. How did you come to come to terms with loving the color of your skin today? And what did that journey look like? Oh my gosh, it is very much a long time coming. And, um, you know, I will say that part of my healing really was that I was able to study this and think about this and, and write about this in, in graduate school. But I will say that like, it took me so long to finish the dissertation because 
everything about the research felt so personal, right? Um, and so in terms of like, how did I come to love myself? To be honest, it's a struggle. I don't love myself every day. You know, like I don't, I don't look at in the mirror and think, God, you're a gorgeous woman, Joanne. Like, I don't do that, right? I don't you think know, any like, woman feels like that. Yeah, yeah. Like, I mean, I hardly look in the mirror on a daily basis. But, you know, I, I think a lot of it really had to do with understanding why we think these negative thoughts, especially with respect to um, our beauty, right? Um, I often, when I have those, those negative thoughts in my head, I often have to ask myself, like, who does this benefit and why do I feel this way? Um, one, you know, cause I know for me growing up a lot, I spent a lot of my youth thinking that I wasn't good enough, that I wasn't beautiful enough. And a lot of it had to do with the, the subtle messages that I got at home, you know, um, yeah, it's funny. There's a I, there's this photo that I was actually talking to my husband about recently. It's a photo of me as a child. Because if you ask anyone in my family what I was like as a child, they're going to say that I was really I was a sassy child, right? I was really mouthy, and you know. Um, and when you ask me, you know, like, oh, what were you like as a child? My answer is, I was a very bruised child. I was a very <laughs> like sad. <laughs> And, and, you know, like no one remembers, you know, no one remembers the sad child because I, I think I, I know that I always performed like the strong headed, um, you know, the strong headed child. So there's this photo and it's of me, my mom and sort of a friend of the fam, the, the child of a friend of a family. Her name is Mei Ling. Mei Ling was like a, a year or two younger than me. And in this photo, it's like my mom is like hugging Mei Ling and I'm sitting and I'm standing next to them sort of like with this like devious look and my husband's like, see, this is how I know you're devious. And I was like, I remember this photo and I did that pose because I was so hurt that my mom was holding Mei Ling so lovingly. Cause every time, you know, she Mei Ling was at this, at a party or something, my mom just really was so drawn to her. And I said, so I used sort of, or I adopted the, the sassy little girl because I didn't want anyone to know how hurt I was because like it, it's, I think it's hard for a child to, to sort of think about like, Oh my gosh, my mom loves someone else more than me. Right. And I'm not trying to put my mom under the bus. You know, I'm, you know, I know that she loved me, but there were these, these things that would happen. And so, yeah, there's just, you know, like, so it's a long time coming. One of the things that I have to remember is that I have to pinpoint people who the people and things that made me think or made me second guess um, my own beauty or my own value, right? And I have to put those people and things into context. Um, I also have to list down all the things that make me valuable that have nothing to do with the way that I look. Um, and also to especially as a professor now, you know, like I always get older, but my, my students are always 18 to 24. And so I'm 46 and it's important for me to carry myself in a particular way. I think around young college women, because they need to see that a person who's everything that they're taught 
you know, is worthless, someone in their 40s, someone who, you know, like, who isn't thin, someone who isn't, you know, like, they need to see someone who's like me carry herself, you know, like in with confidence and with power. And so those are the things. Yeah, it's like, those are the things that I that I hold on to. So I don't always love myself. But I, I'm very conscious of what it means to at least outwardly present loving myself. Yeah, absolutely. Um, So I guess, you know, the way I've been processing this conversation in my head is um, what you've done here is through the process of your PhD and, uh, and honing in right to the thing that was creating an incredible amount of pain for you from the time that you were a child is you kind of slayed that inner dragon first. So that process of studying the thing that hurt you incredibly also helped you come to terms with it. And it sounds like you've been on a healing journey for this for some time. Now sitting where you are and um, you've thought about this, you're, you're an academic. um, Tell me how you think this spans to the experience of black women today as well, um, who, who are living this in America, right? So expand on that for me, because I have heard my black friends talk about this. I have heard my Indian friends talk about this. My, my Caucasian friends have no idea what any of us are talking about, but there's a, there's a seated hidden pain there that you carry with yourself everywhere you go. Tell me what, what you think about this with, with the black community. Yeah, well, especially with black women. So when we're looking, so as an academic, when we're looking at the research about colorism, you know, black women, it it is black women and black scholars that pave the way with respect to these conversations. And I think a lot of this has to do with the fact that they're feeling, you know, they feel the impact of colorism in multiple ways, right? Um, Not because colorism traditionally is skin tone discrimination within the same racial or ethnic group. Right. So, of course, they're feeling that lack of value within the black community, but then they're also feeling that lack of value in in society overall. Right. And so what I what of the many things I learn is that, again, how you carry yourself with pride, it, it definitely it has an impact. It makes a difference. But you also. Sorry for being so inarticulate. Let me just backtrack. Oh, you did great. Okay. No, because like, so because I think about in the Filipino community or in the Asian American community, the way that Black women are perceived, right? And 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 there, and this can go in a multiple, in different ways. One, they're perceived negatively because of dark skin, because of general American racism. Right. But then there's also a lotting of black women because they're more present in popular culture. Right. So there is this, you know, I think black women have this very complex place. But I think that what Filipinos and Asian Americans have to understand is the way in which black women have historically had to fight for their place in the, in culture and in history. And um Oh, so you're saying you're saying you're making a distinction of, hey, it's one thing to be judged inside your own culture, but it's 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 how much sharper do you think it feels like if you are judged in the in amongst a larger context of cultures? Yeah, and this happens simultaneously. 
Um, you know, and so I think that with respect to Filipinos or Asian Americans, um, I think that when we, and I guess on the road to understanding our own sense of beauty, I think it's important to, to understand race and race relations in the United States. Right. Um, you know, just because so much of that history informs the way we position our beauty. And, and I say this, especially in relation to anti-Black racism within the Filipino community or within the Asian American community, because colorism is rooted in that, right? I often think of, I often tell my students that colorism is how different racial and ethnic communities um, justify and practice anti-Black racism. And so it's really important for respective communities to understand the the ways in which we articulate this. Um, but we also have to understand the ways in which we are also impacted by anti-Black racism. I hope that made sense. Yeah, it does. It does. So like zooming out for a second. So you have, um, thank you for that. That was actually really in-depth. I'm probably going to be unpacking that long after our interview is over. Um, so now you have this cosmetology background, um, uh, cosmeceuticals, um, you have created a body of work around this and you've healed, uh, and it's an ongoing process. I, I personally know that too. Um, talk to me about now your perspective of the cosmetic industry and how representation, uh, and increasing that representation do you think needs to be a part of, uh, integrating healing across every culture that experiences colorism? Yeah, so I think something to remember about the cosmetics industry is that it's definitely rooted like in in capitalist values, right? So if you're looking for healing, I don't think the cosmetics industry is sort of like a, a place to do that because I don't think that the cosmetics industry is invested in healing. They're not invested in equity. They are invested in making money. And so what we're seeing today are these sort of surface value gestures uh, that speak to diversity. So, for example, maybe seeing more diverse models or something like that. But even till today, when you're, we're looking at advertising, for example, for beauty products, we may see more um, people of color in these advertisements. But the messages have never changed right? The messages have never changed. They may add a few more colors to a foundation palette or something like that, but there's still an underlying message, not just about, um, you know, lighter being better, but also this notion of lightness also has to do with, for example, um, when you look on YouTube and the different makeup tutorials, all of those tutorials are about how to make your nose look smaller, how to, you know, make your face more angular, how to make your eyes much bigger. So they're, they're not, they're, they're not really doing anything that's like earth shattering or life changing, you know? Um, and again, it's because in capitalism, none of that matters, right? Unless healing could be an industry that could make a lot of money then sure, that's when you're going to see it. But healing really has to be, um, you know, these are individual practices. Um, and you, again, like, I don't, I don't, I don't think um, 
I don't think capitalism has the answer for for healing. I would agree. Um, I think it's I think it's inspiring though to see um, minority founded brands coming yeah. to the consumer space. Like uh, I just learned that Brianna had a fabulous makeup line the other day, mm. and there's an Indian woman named Deepika, and she's got this cool thing called Tinted, and it's about um, creating products for women of color so that they the products accentuate the actual color of your skin instead of masking it to appear something else and or you're playing in shades that were created just for Caucasian or, or Western European women. Do you think that's an indicator of some kind of tide turning? I do. Um, and I really appreciate. Uh, so thank you for bringing that up. Because yes, I often come off as very much a pessimist, but I do recognize the importance of seeing all of these brands. Um, and especially uh, because when we look at like the social media space, I really appreciate the way that, you know, the internet has really opened the doors for these more smaller, like independent brands to surface, you know, um, like you mentioned, Rihanna, like Rihanna's like huge, you know, her Fenty, her, her brand is, is, is huge is probably one of the, the top selling brands. Oh, and um, Amon used to have hers in the nineties. I don't know how that's doing, but that was, yeah, that was cool. Yeah. And like, yeah, I think, uh, yes, that is true. I think she still has, I think her brand is still out. There's also, um, I think, there's a, a company called Milani, um, there's Minted. And so I, I do like how, you know, certain companies were able to develop to open doors for women of color to have more options, right? And, and I definitely think uh, that that's important, um, it, you know, and also to, because these smaller companies have also, sort of given way for us to rethink and reimagine beauty, right? Not just in terms of racial and ethnic representation, but also when we're looking at um, queer and trans representation, right? So like, I think that these companies definitely uh, play an important role, but we also have to like, I do think that we also have to attribute some of the, the older companies, the, the thing, the, the company I'm thinking about is a company called Fashion Fair because they were definitely one of the first to make makeup specifically for Black women. And I feel like in these, you know, because there's so much hype around Fenty and Rihanna's line and people treat it as if uh, she was the first. And I think what we have to remember is like um, Fenty is one of a legacy of cosmetics companies that you know, so there is no Fenty without a fashion fair. And I think that that's important. And that the history of fashion fair, I think is, is important because you have these, um, again, smaller companies, fashion fair, if we look at Madam CJ Walker, and what she did for black women, um, you know, to become entrepreneurs, you know, I, I do think that that's important. Yeah, no, thank you for thank you for sharing that. I think it is key to remember the stepping stones along the way, because for good or for bad, I am like an yeah. eternal optimist. <laughs> you know? I, I for good or for bad. Sometimes it shoots me in the foot, but it makes it makes it easier for me to contend with those unappetizing parts of our reality. And you know, I just uh, through my healing journey, that's been something that I have have clung to, and it's not always consistent. Let me tell you, there are hard oh, days yeah. for sure. Um, yeah. Joanne, Joanna, do you have children? I do not. Joanne, I have a 10-year-old daughter. Her name is Rhea, 
And on the weekends, we watch um, Indian movies. It's my way of hoping to create some kind of source of Indian language. And for us, we speak Punjabi and Hindi, and I failed to actually teach it to her. So, um, you know, she's grown up with this kind of background of Bollywood. And, and, and as I was preparing for a conversation, it dawned on me, I wonder what Rhea is thinking subconsciously about the color of her skin and how it's represented in media, or even the lack of representation of girls that look like her uh, broadly across media, not just mm -hmm. in cosmetics ads. What advice or guidance would you give to parents who want to help their daughters or even sons reframe from the inherent colorism that exists in their in their cultures, be there even if they are second, third generation today in America? Yeah, so a couple of things. I think it's important, uh, not just for parents, but for families to model um you know, to, to, to be good role models, right? And so a lot of that really has to do with one, I know it's hard for, say, a mother to, again, heal, right? To not feel sort of inadequate because of certain beauty standards. But it, it I think that both, I think parents have to understand that the ways that they articulate their own self-value, especially in front of their kids, their kids are going to learn that. So if you are like a dark-skinned mom and you're always talking about, um, you know, not being beautiful or, or what have you, like your kids are going to absorb that, right? And so I think – so something that I wish my mom did with me was had honest conversations about, about beauty, Right. Um, you know, because you can't expect your kid to say, look, mom, you make me feel terrible when you say certain things. I think that as the adult in the room, you sort of have to catch yourself and then have these honest conversations. I think part of modeling is doing what you're doing, which is you expose her to media that looks like her. And luckily, we're at a place where, Again, because of internet and social media, there are so many options um, regarding uh, the things that you can show her, right? You know, because um, even Bollywood films sort of, there is that bias for lighter, you know, for, for lighter skin. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. You know, there's actually there a huge bias for lighter skin and the thin frame and the tall Indian submissive girl. There's that huge bias for that. So, like I said, prior to this conversation, I started thinking about and all of that and it started unraveling in my mind. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So it's, it's, I think that it's important to expose young people to different types of media and it takes a little bit more digging, I think, for parents to find, you know, um, but I think that it's important because media is such a huge factor. Um the education system needs to do its job, but unfortunately it's not. And so I think that something that parents can do is engage is engage their kids in storytelling, right? Let your kids know the story of their families. Because so as a college student, I'm surprised at how so many of my students, especially, you know, like students who either immigrated here or are children of immigrants, how many of them don't know the story of how they are here in the United States, right? Because if schools are not going to give us some knowledge about who we are, where we're from, we have to, this is the legwork that we have to do ourselves, right? Because I think that when kids are raised with 
um, seeing themselves, right, either in the storytelling that happens through the family, when they see themselves in the in media that they're exposed to, it helps them to develop a sense of self, right? So I think that um, rep- representation goes a long way, but it's it's media, it's education, um, and the other component to that is government, but that is not really... Um, I'm not really going to focus on that with respect to like the family and raising kids. I think that again, just, um, you know, uh, media, but I think just general family storytelling, giving kids some sense of identity and letting them know how unique their identity is. Cause for me growing up, my parents were very much about because they were immigrants throwing away everything that they learned or that happened to them in the Philippines and thinking of the United States as like, we're starting fresh. And so me and my brother and sister, we didn't have a good base to, to formulate who we were as Filipinos in the United States, you know, and our parents never taught us that. Um, And when we, things that we learned, we learned too late. And so I think, parents today, if you could engage in more storytelling, give your kids something that they could readily identify with. I think that that becomes helpful. So exposure to different kinds of media. Rhea loves BTS right now. So she's always like, so there, we got that. We have the Korean pop element down. (laughs) And then um, anchoring their, anchoring their anchoring them in their history and the, and the history of their family and their culture. I think that's, I think that's really important. Um, What I'm teaching Rhea, my value add, if I have any to this conversation, is what I've start, recently started teaching, Ria, is how you talk about yourself. Would you let somebody you love talk to themselves the way you talk to yourself? And I think, it. I hope it's working. What I'm trying to do is like get to the heart of the issue. Like you have to have yeah. empathy for yourself and use that as a, as a frame to put yourself in the middle of the the of the, of this circle of influence. You are your own influence. And, um, but we could talk about this forever, especially since we started talking mm-hmm. about parenting. Hey, I have a question for you that we've been asking every guest on our episodes. Um, and that is Joanne, when was the first time you really saw yourself? When was the first time I really saw? That's a great question. Oh, my God. I probably, I'll say probably in high school. And so when I say the first time I really saw myself, it's not so much that I saw my physical self. It's more of I saw myself as someone who who empowered herself to make her own decisions. I hope that makes sense. So in high school, we would have these assignments. Like I remember this one assignment in particular where it was a junior year in high school, Mr. Villa's American history class. Everyone had to do something where they had to write a research paper on uh, an important person in American history. And so the way I approached this was I knew that if I'm going to spend time researching on something, it had to be something that I was heart and soul invested in. So everyone was writing papers about like George Washington and Abraham Lincoln or, you know, and um, at the time the movie Goodfellas came out. 
So my research project for American history was I did a project on Martin Scorsese. And we had like the written component and then we had like the presentation component and, you know, the presentation component, people just sort of like do their presentation. I did not do that. I simulated a radio show (laughs) where I played Martin Scorsese. (laughs) Yeah. And the reason why I say this is when I saw myself is because I, I learned at a young age, I always wanted to push what I could do in school because I always wanted to make my assignments enjoyable. So, um, yeah. And I remember the, the teacher, Mr. Via, he was so impressed that, um, weeks later he gave me an old baseball cap and it was his baseball cap from UC Berkeley. And he said, this was mine when I was in college. And he goes, I have a feeling one day you're going to go to UC Berkeley. And I had zero desire to go to UC Berkeley, but I ended up going there for grad school. So I always, when I got in, I remember, I remember, you know, that, that gift because he was like, you, you are such a unique thinker. And so I think from that moment, I always saw my own personal value, not as like in terms of beauty, but I always knew intellectually I could bring something interesting into a conversation or into a project. So oh, that is an insight worth having early. I'm so <laughs> glad you had that early. Professor Joanne Rondilia, thank you for joining us today on our episode of Colorism Today. I've really enjoyed our conversation. Thank you. <laughs> I'm Bella Sanger, and this podcast was recorded in partnership with Joy Sauce at Cloud Room Studios in Seattle, Washington. Thanks to our audio engineer, Nick Patrie, video editor, Matt Flunker, and producer, Chelsea Lynn. For more information, head to joysauce.com.